Welcome to the Terrorist Therapist Show on Renegade Talk Radio with your host, Dr. Carroll. Though you may not realize that the ongoing threat of terrorism is affecting your life and that of your loved ones. Each week, Dr. Carroll analyzes the hottest topics in terror and helps you and your family reach your dreams despite living in a time of terror. Stories of two accidental terrorists. Welcome to the Terrorist Therapist Show. I'm Dr. Carol, a psychiatrist, terrorist therapist. Well, this is a very um, interesting <laughs> two um, They These two accidental terrorists, I call them accidental because they are not radical Islamists and they don't want to destroy the West but they are using some things from the terrorist playbook. So we're going to talk first about um, Jürgen Konings. Uh, he is Belgium's anti-lockdown Rambo, and he is facing terrorism charges. He's right now, as, as I'm recording this, um, he is still uh, at large, and there are hundreds of Belgian um, police and military looking for him and also from other countries in Europe. Um, he, is, he, is, he doesn't want to destroy the West, but he wants to destroy the chief virologist uh, in Belgium, the Belgian's equivalent to Dr. Fauci. I'm sure there are lots of people in America <laughs> who can relate to that and also um, part of the government. He, in other words, what he is angry about is uh, all of the restrictions, the mandates that have been put down, notably the lockdown and other things, uh, because of COVID. And then um, next we're gonna be talking about Samuel Cassidy, who you may recognize as the name of the person who was the mass shooter recently in um, San Jose. California. And he um, doesn't want to destroy the West. He wants to and was effective at destroying nine of his co-workers um, and ultimately himself. Um, by the way, uh, Jürgen Konings, uh, who, who is on still on the run, may ultimately suicide as well. So, okay, now I'll get into their story. Oh, so wait. <laughs> so the, what Samuel Cassidy has to do with terrorism is that um, years before, uh, in 2016, he was found on a return trip to the United States from the Philippines. He was stopped by customs and he was found to have terrorism books. So I, now that I have whet your appetite, <laughs> let's start with uh, Belgium's anti-lockdown Rambo. Okay, so he, um, he is a man who was, um, he's a Belgian soldier, actually, and he stole several weapons, and he went on the run on May 17th, so it's almost two weeks already that they have been looking for him. Now, um, they, he, they went, um, they started looking for him after they discovered lots of weapons were missing and also discovered that he um, had left farewell letters 
and that these contain violent threats directed at the Belgian government and at prominent virologists, in particular, one named Van Ranst. So Van Ranst is the Dr. Fauci of Belgium. And um, he took the weapons from the military barracks. Now, what's kind of ironic and sort of tragic, and they're needless to say, getting lots of flack for this. Um, he was um, in, in 2020, uh, he received um, two disciplinary sanctions because he was already making threats to Van Ranst um, in, at that time. And so he was degraded. He, had, he was originally a corporal in the Belgian air component and a shooting instructor. He was an elite soldier and an experienced sniper. He took part in 11 foreign missions, including Yugoslavia, Bosnia, Kosovo, Lebanon, Iraq, and Afghanistan. I mean, this is an elite, elite soldier. And um, so he got demoted when he threatened uh, Van Ranst. And um, he was demoted to become wep a weapon bearer. And that gave him access to the armory, which is how he was able to amass all of these weapons and take them with him, put them in his car on May 17th, and, um, and why he represents such a threat at this point. Um, his name was added to the uh, list of the Coordination Unit for Threat Analysis, which features Muslim extremists, uh, you know, regular radical Islamist terrorists, basically. Now, um, he, his three farewell letters um, stated that he would resist the Belgian government's COVID-19 containment measures, and he threatened to attack, as I said, the government and virologists, namely this Van Ranst, and um, loaded his car with all kinds of weapons, ro rocket launchers, personal defense weapons, pistols, semi-automatic pistols, uh, and rounds and rounds of ammunition cartridges. And um, so, the, so they, he has been, he has been, they have been searching for him uh, now since, since May 18th um, with hundreds of over 400 troops looking for him. Um, he, he, some of the weapons that he took include a submachine gun and a handgun with ability with an ability to pierce bulletproof vests, and he is expected to be wearing this vest. Uh, he's called a terrorist suspect, and according to Belgian media, and um, he has been investigated or is being investigated for quote attempted murder and illegal possession of weapons in a terrorist context. Now they're not saying, they're specifically being careful to say that he is not a terrorist in the same way that radical Islamists, especially in Belgium, are, which is the heart of um, radical Islamists in Europe. Um, that is the, you know, the place where there is the most, most of them. Um, so uh, they're being careful to say that he is not a terrorist like a radical Islamist terrorist, in part because they want to capture him alive and they don't want, you know, people going off on their own or, uh, or even the people who are in the uh, groups, amongst the groups looking for him, you know, the police or, or so on, um, they really don't want him to be killed um, 
so now there's particularly searching in this national park. That's where they thought he was. And they have spent many of these days looking for him in the park. And um, they have even with thermal cam cameras and all of that. Now, um, his, he has a girlfriend named Gwendy. And um, she has gone on television asking him to, quote, make sure it stops um, and to not hurt anyone. Uh, he booby trapped his car, the car where he took all the uh, weapons, but presumably he took them out of the car <laughs> and has them with him as well. But he booby trapped his car so that if anybody went to his car, opened the door of his car, they would get blown up. Um, then one thing that's really kind of sad and just shows how dedicated he is to the cause, the cause being uh, speaking out against, fighting against all of these lockdowns and other COVID precautions, you know, which, which really, um, I've talked about this, how we have become in, in America, this is George Orwell's um, uh, 1984, novel it's just you know we have become and belgium and europe i mean lots of countries have become like george orwell's 1984 where um, these mandates have you know it's the government has taken too much power bottom line so um the girlfriend is the one who uh alerted the authorities to his disappearance she discovered the letters left behind and um she said that his letters included his saying that he, quote, could no longer live in a society where politicians and virologists have taken everything away from us, unquote. So he would, quote, join uh, the resistance and would not surrender. Um, yes. And he's all, you know, he also wrote uh, threatening notes to the country's defense minister. And he wrote, you trained, quote, you trained me to become who I am. I am now going to use that against you, you know, with all of his army training and all of his fighting for Belgium on behalf of Belgium. Um, so there has been a lot of, um, there have been a lot of uh, support, has been a lot of support for him on social media. Um, he, so people have tweeted about him and, and there was a Facebook uh, page and so on. And um, then in one newspaper uh, article, the reporter who claims to have seen one of his letters, uh, he said that Konings wrote, Quote, I know that I will suddenly be the enemy of the state. They will look for me and find me after a while. I don't care if I die or not, but then it will be my way. Uh, you know, I, you know, I mean, I mean, yes, it's terrible. It, well, it would be terrible if he if he um, injures or kills anybody. And it is terrible that he's using up hundreds of uh, soldiers and police and so on from Belgium man hours and also from uh, Germany and um, um, the Netherlands and so on and other countries in Europe, because he could of course uh, cross all these borders. Um, 
Anyway, I'll stop here and I will continue with him. It's, it's a particularly interesting story. Um, I hope you find it that way too, because there are a lot of people who wouldn't necessarily uh, steal arms and, and go on a, you know, run away after sending, leaving all these threatening letters. But there are a lot of people, including myself, who um, are really uh, angry and concerned and about how the government, our government, even America, has taken just too much power in the name of COVID. So stay tuned and we'll talk more about him. There are some more interesting uh, um, aspects to him, the, uh, the manhunt and so on. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Terrorist Therapist Show. We're talking today about stories of two accidental terrorists. And we've started with the story of Jürgen Konings, who is Belgium's anti-lockdown Rambo and is still on the loose as I am recording this. Um, he uh, has left letters behind. He is this incredibly uh, elite, you know, well-trained, um, soldier and ha who has fought in all of these different countries on behalf of Belgium and behalf of the West, basically, really against terrorists. And um, again, I'm calling them um, uh, accidental terrorists because they have some things from the terrorist playbook. And in, in the case of uh, Jurgen Konings, he is being considered a terrorist. But but they're no, he's not been considered a terrorist per se, as I, I was trying to clarify that before. Uh, not a radical Islamist terrorist, but in the uh, in a terrorist kind of context, because he has left these threats and he has he is roaming around the country, or at this point he may be anywhere in Europe. But um, he and he's left these threats, and particularly to, to uh, Belgium's Dr. Fauci their equivalent of Dr. Fauci. Um, so let me tell you about uh, the timeline of, um, of some of his, you know, with that, there, are, there are hundreds of people looking for him because, I mean, his main target, as I said, was their chief virologist, uh, Van Ranst, and, um, um, you know, he, and in fact, so, you know, there is this concern that he is probably laying low, or that's the possibility that he is laying low until he is able to get at Van Rast or get at some of the other people he threatened from the government, all about the fact that they are uh, mandating, making these mandates, taking away freedom. Um, so... Uh, his girlfriend, his girlfriend again, has been telling, letting the media know about parts of the notes that he left. Um, for example, quote, he wrote, he planned to join the resistance and may not survive. Um, Mark Van Ranst is the, is the virologist. Um, and he was so on. He, he had already been. Um, he was already being monitored by some intelligence agencies because of his having made these threats to Van Ranst in 2020. And he is on an official terrorist watch list alongside members of ISIS. 
And um, he has, because of his military experience, which includes camouflage and marksmanship, he is both incredibly difficult to find with the camouflage <laughs> and incredibly dangerous. And so, um, you know, he is, as I said, he's one of their most elite soldiers. So they raised the threat level in Belgium to the highest level uh, because they say he has concrete plans and there is a degree of imminence. Then, uh, now I'm looking at the timeline. So then, you know, um, now on May 20th, so he left these letters on May 17th and he took the weapons on May 17th. And then they, the girlfriend told the authorities and then they started the manhunt on May 18th. And then on May 20th, um, they, they did a separate police action. In addition to looking in the national park, they went to Leuven or Louvain, which is where I went to medical school. <laughs> The University of Louvain, I did the French section, you know, Belgium is, is divided into uh, two, there are people who are Flemish, and presumably that is what Jürgen Konings is, <laughs> Flemish, that's not a French name, and then there are people who are French, and so I went to the French part of the medical school, um, and all the classes were in French, yes. Anyhow, they went to my town, <laughs> and they started looking for him there, because that is near where Van Rensst is said to have a residence. And um, they discovered that uh, this Rambo um, was in, at least near Van Rensst's house for at least two hours. He was within range of his target for at least two hours at some point during this manhunt. Uh, so he is a danger. And you know, people are questioning how a man on a terrorist watch list was able to get access to the armory of a military barracks. Good question. Um, so let's see, some more letters. Um, he wrote one to police warning him, to, warning them of what he was about to do and making the threat. And then he wrote letters, of course, to his partner. And he said, quote, I can't live with the lives of people who decide how we should live. The so-called political elite, and now also the virologists, decide how you and I should live. They sow hatred and frustration worse than it already was, and no one rebels against that. If you say anything, you will be punished. So that's what he's, you know, that's where he's coming from. Um, and again, they want to capture him alive. They've made that clear, the police. And, um, but they, they, officially designated him a terrorist sub suspect so that the security forces could have extra powers when they were investigating him. And then the federal prosecutor went on TV and asked for him to call, get in touch with someone he trusts, presumably that would be his girlfriend, in order to work out how he could turn himself in peacefully. Now, do you think a man, from what you know about this man, from what I've told you already, do you think he's about to turn himself in peacefully? I don't think so. Um, there was a Facebook uh, page for him. It had nearly 50,000 members on it, but then um, uh, Facebook shut it down. So this is the story. Uh, and as I said, he, he is still on the loose. You know, I mean, if you're honest with yourself, I mean, nobody wants anybody to kill anybody. 
well, I shouldn't say nobody, but I'm presuming you who are listening to this do not want anyone to kill anybody. But at the same time, there is something to be said for the, um, you know, there are people who are living vicariously through him at this point, because there are people, I mean, you may well have heard about people in Europe, especially, although of course in the United States too, people who are making protests and all of that against the lockdowns and, and other COVID uh, mandates in Europe, just like in the United States. Um, so, you know, there are people who are secretly saying, go Rambo <laughs> or go Jurgen, Jurgen Konings. Well, all right. Um, let me, I'll start now telling you about um, going to the second story, the story of the second accidental terrorist, and that is uh, Sam Cassidy. And as you know, Samuel Cassidy is the San Jose mass shooter. Now, um, the uh, Belgium's Rambo or Jurgen was 46 years old. Um, Samuel Cassidy is 57. Samuel was born in California. He's a resident of San Jose. He had a home. He, he once owned a home until he uh, set up um, uh, incendiary devices to have the home catch fire while he was already in his uh, shooting spree at his work. He worked at the VTA, the Santa Clara Valley Transportation Authority. It was a light rail yard. Um, his, his house caught fire. He set up explosives and gasoline. Um, he worked at this, at this uh, Santa Clara Valley TV, VTA uh, since at least 2012. Some, some reports have said for 20 years, but at least since 2012. First, he was a mechanic. Then he um, maintained substations. Uh, he was earning over $100,000. He was described by a neighbor, neighbors as mean, untalkative, lonely, strange. His ex-wife, uh, Cecilia Nelms, they were married for 10 years until 2005. She said they haven't been in touch for the past 13 years. She describes him as having had a bad temper. And she says that he told her years ago that he wanted to kill people at work. He was uncomfortable around people. He was angry. He told her that he was angry about co-workers getting better assignments. Um, now, there are some interesting, you know, there are reports of his ex-girlfriends, but they sort of, they're, they're not very clear as to which ex-girlfriend they're talking about in one particular, uh, in each report. But basically, there were at least two ex-girlfriends. And um, he met one of them on match. Uh, and she said, or one of the ex-girlfriends said that he forced sex acts and rape on her. Uh, a girlfriend said, an ex-girlfriend said that he was bipolar. He had mood swings that worsened with alcohol. We don't know, by the way, even his family doesn't know if he was officially diagnosed as bipolar. Um, but he at least had mood swings. Uh, he was, he had a, vol they had a volatile off and on relationship for a year. Um, at one, one of these ex-girlfriends, he dated for two months and then he proposed. 
and she didn't want to say yes to marry him because she thought they didn't know each other long enough. That was smart of her. And, but she said that when he when she turned him down, he became a different person. He was angry. He was screaming at her. He stole her car. And uh, he's filed a restraining order against a girlfriend for complaining of domestic violence. Of course, these girls were complaining of domestic violence on his part. Um, so, um, so that's kind of the basic behind him. When we come back, I'm going to talk more about him in regard to what he did and what terrorism has to do with it. Welcome back to the Terrorist Therapist Show, where we're talking today about stories of two accidental terrorists. And I was in the middle of telling you about Samuel Cassidy, the San Jose mass shooter, and what that had to do with terrorism, we're gonna to get to now. Um, he he uh, perpetrated a mass shooting at his workplace and he killed nine people and then he killed himself when the police started coming in. And he basically, from you know what has been able to be found out, he basically had a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde personality. And the day that he uh, did the mass shooting, he was Mr. Hyde. So what does this have to do with terrorism? I mean, you know, and it's interesting because a lot of times, um, it's, it is important to make the distinction between a workplace uh, shooting and radical Islamist terrorism. And sometimes those two get sort of reported in the media as kind of overlapping or, or um, you know, like a, typically it's that they, they call something a workplace shooting that is terrorism. Now, is that going to be the case because they don't want to say that it's terrorism because that might scare us or, you know, or, or make us realize that, yes, we do still have to be concerned about terrorists, radical Islamist terrorists and domestic terrorists and so on. But so um, oftentimes or there have been times where workplace where um, terrorist shootings at a workplace were described just as a workplace incident kind of thing. So um, the re what Samuel Cassidy has to do with terrorism is that he was detained by Homeland Security in 2016 with a book about terrorism and notes about hating his um, job. And this was five years before uh, the mass shooting that was this past week. Now, um, he, um, this was when he was held by US Customs officers when he was returning from the Philippines. Now, it's really kind of interesting. As a psychiatrist, one of the things that I find interesting about him, well, um, and particularly in relation to, well, aside from terrorism, actually, is that. Why did the US customs officers stop him in the first place returning from the Philippines? And um, it's because there are, they do stop people who they think might be, might have gone to the Philippines for um, sex tourism. In other words, people who go to the Philippines um, 
in order to have sex with um, you know, women or men for that matter in the, in the Philippines who, who are up to no good. Often these are, are people who are underage and so on. And it's interesting to me, as I said, as a psychiatrist, that they would have stopped him. I mean, they didn't know what he was carrying, okay? Um, but it's interesting that they would have stopped him because in fact, as I was just talking about, his ex-girlfriends did mention um, that he would assault them sexually, rape them, and so on. So, you know, there's a profile that um, these U.S. customs officers might well have um, have suspect why they suspected him, that he may well have the way he looked, um, the way he was acting, might have fit the profile to them, at least enough to search him um, for someone who would have done uh, sexual tourism in, in the Philippines. So, you know, that's just an aside. <laughs> um, so, okay. So he was, now there's a, a memo um, from the, um, the, the US customs officers wrote a memo and it says Cassidy possessed book, possessed quote, books about terrorism and fear and manifestos, as well as a black memo book filled with lots of notes about how he hates the VTA, his workplace. Now, why was Samuel Cassidy carrying a book about terrorism? Um, there are, we can only speculate at this point, especially since he killed himself. Um, I mean, maybe someone will come forward. I shouldn't say that. I mean, hopefully someone would come forward and if they knew, although he was someone who certainly kept to himself, but um, he wasn't in a radical, to our knowledge so far, he wasn't in a radical Islamist terrorist group and he didn't, so far, we don't know of any plans to join such a group. Um, but he did, um, you know, was he buying, was he carrying these books about, reading books about terrorism because it helped him make his plans about weapons and explosives, you know, how he, um, he stockpiled weapons. They found an amazing amount of weapons and explosives and so on in his home. And um, so did he get, you know, did he find out what to buy from these books about terrorism? Did he copy what the terrorists do? Um, he also seemed to, he, it is reported by someone who knew him that he liked Stephen King books. Now, I know reading Stephen King doesn't make you a terrorist or a um, mass shooter for that matter, but we do know that Stephen King books, some of them, are particularly violent uh, in a very eerie kind of way, and um, it seems to me from what we know about Samuel that he was could well have been living vicariously both through the lives of terrorists that he reads about or read about and through the uh, Stephen King books. Just like Walter Mitty, he may well have been daydreaming, living vicariously through the Stephen King characters. Uh, it would be wonderful if um, somebody who knew the answers to these questions came forward. But certainly it, he is not the first person to be inspired by terrorists and by terrorist writings, whether on, <coughs> whether on the internet or in books or, you know, 
reading uh, news stories about terrorists and so on. Um, now, it's not clear how long Keth he was held by the US customs officers um, or why he was eventually allowed to go free. Um, he, they, he was asked by these officers uh, if he had problems with anybody at work because when they saw his uh, black memo book filled with lots of notes about how he hates them, his coworkers, um, he was asked if he had problems with anybody at work and he said no, and they just kind of believed him. Now the whole thing here is kind of like the same story in Belgium. The story is why didn't anyone say anything? Um, you know, the, it, it turns out that these US customs officers never, who discovered these things, never told anybody. They wrote this memo, and the memo got filed apparently because we, they have now been able to find it, but they didn't tell anyone, any police or any you know, law enforcement or the FBI or anybody like that, or even um, the, his workplace. Now, it probably wouldn't have been allowed to just call up his workplace and say, you know, hey, uh, we found somebody who, uh, you know, there is some, there are some privacy laws, but they certainly could have, um, contacted law enforcement or the FBI, the CIA, somebody or other to give them a heads up that this man exists. Um, they could have gotten him help. You know, apparently, you know, there is this, uh, people are, his family and, and um, even his family didn't know if he was officially, or so they say, didn't know if he was officially diagnosed manic depressive, but they obviously did not um, look to get him help. So, um, and if, if this had been reported to someone who knew him, um, you know, I mean, I mean, as I said, uh, law enforcement or um, someone could have tried to get him help. Of course, it's always, you know, the first, the first responders, so to speak, should be to, pro to some symptoms of mental illness should be one's family. Uh, he had lots of weapons. He targeted specific people, apparently. That's what is being said. Um, he, he, uh, you know, like the ex-girlfriends aren't being named. That's why it's a little confusing as to which ex-girlfriend said what, but they both seem to have uh, said similar kinds of things in terms of his being sexually um, aggressive and rape even and so on. Um, but they talked about how um, one of his friends said that he suffered from depression and was on medication. So clearly someone, some doctor, whether it's a family doctor, you know, a general practitioner type doctor or a psychiatrist would have given him at one time some medication. If this friend, you know, this friend seems to know what he's talking about. Uh, the friend said, not sure if there were other issues other than some inner, inner demons like many of us have. It's sad to hear they finally got the best of him. I can only relate his actions today on some sort of mental illness. This is what his friend said. But he said, I don't have much to say other than I'm just in complete shock. During the times that I knew him, I never saw any signs of Sam doing something like this. He was a very nice man to those close to him, closer to him, polite and kept to himself. He was very smart, loved reading, especially Stephen King books. Now, um, you know, there's there when when something like this happens, there are the people who say, I, 
I never I how did I never I mean like let's look at this friend for example this friend knew he was on medication um but I mean not that it's not that it's up to the friend to get him to get help, although he could have suggested that, but it really is his family. And his family was really clueless in terms of really did not keep in touch with him, even though um, at least his sister knew um, that he knew that he um, had did have mental, here we go. <laughs> I wanted to give you some more quotes. Um, the family said that he felt, quote, lost to them for months. His sister Anne um, said he was quick to suspect bad intentions toward him and verging on paranoia. But then his father said that when he was there just a couple of days before, he seemed fine. They, they just really did not have a clue. Um, you know, they're, they, they're saying he, he was lost to them. They just weren't really in touch with him um, here. And his sister is saying no one in her family really knew whether her older brother was ever diagnosed with bipolar or other mental health issues. If he had been, Sam was way too private of a person to share this with us. Well, this is another example of why families, I mean, this is the same story with all we've seen so many especially recently, we have seen so many examples of mass shooters whose family, um, you know, had some signs, admit to having some signs, but somehow they didn't think that those signs were gonna end up in anything really dangerous or serious. Again, I, I can't, I, I just, I'm, this is a plea to, um, if you are, if you know somebody, or certainly if there's somebody in your family who seems to be showing signs, uh, and even if you're not sure, suggest to them, or if it's more serious, then take them to a psychiatrist, to an emergency room, have a professional evaluate them. And then if they do say that he has some kind of psychological problem, um, try to make sure that they continue to go for help. Well, thank you for listening to the Terrorist Therapist Show. I'm Dr. Carol your terrorist therapist. If you would like to find out more about terrorism from me, your terrorist therapist, visit my website, terroristtherapist.com. And if you're a parent or teacher and want to build stronger nests for your kids to become more resilient, check out my new award-winning book, Lions and Tigers and Terrorists, Oh My, How to Protect Your Child in a Time of Terror. It's the first and only book about terrorism for kids. You can find it wherever books are sold or directly from the publisher at terrorismforkids.com. Terrorism, the number four, kids.com. I'm Dr. Carol, your terrorist therapist. Thank you for listening to The Terrorist Therapist Show on Renegade Talk Radio with your host, Dr. Carol. We hope listening to the show has made you feel calmer, more resilient, and more able to reach your dreams despite living in a time of terror. You can also check out past shows on Renegade Talk Archives for more insights.